You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxham. On today's show, we visit the dark side with a peek behind the curtains of Talking Horse Theatre's production of Sweeney Todd, which opens tonight. And then later in the show, Missouri's first ever poet laureate, Walter Bargain, joins me in the studio to talk about his new book, My Other Mother's Red Mercedes, about his relationship with his mother and their experience of her dementia. But first, we've got some polishing off to do. Ah, the famous line. <laughs> with director Kathleen Johnson, actor David Hall, and actor, singer, radio host, all-round uh, <laughs> celebrity oh. Monica Palmer. Oh, <laughs> good morning. Here to take us into the grimy world of a Victorian London and its most infamous barber, <laughs> Sweeney Todd. Hello, yes. my lovelies. Hello. Hello. <laughs> it's a perfect morning for this. It is. Yeah. It's dark and dreary, mm-hmm. a little bit dank. We need more kind of smoke and smoke. Yeah, we, we have a, we have a smoke machine. Yeah. <laughs> So this is an ambitious performance, is it not, Kathleen? Yes. Director? Yes, very much so. The musical itself, in any scale, in any circumstance, is gigantic and intense and hard. And then to say, hey, small intimate theater in Columbia, let's do it with 12 people in a black box, was intimidating and terrifying and incredibly exciting. And... It has been a wild ride, but so much fun. Yeah. So when when this opportunity came up to be the director, did you just leap into it and say, me, 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 I want to do it? Or did you say, really, can you not find anybody else? Oh, no. <laughs> no, I did. I said, yes, absolutely. And then I said, wait, I need to ask my husband to make sure he'll watch our child. And then I was like, ah, he'll say yes. And then jumped right in. Yeah. I, I, all theater is amazing, but I love when constraints are put on something. I think there's more fun and more explanation and more creativity when you have confinements. And so doing it in a space like this, being able to think outside of the box was really exciting. And doing a show of this caliber with incredible actors and actresses in Mid-Missouri was also exciting to me to see like what can we bring out of people. It, it sounds like just such a tall order that it would be, I'd be terrified by it. But you, you have a background in theatre. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I studied theatre in college and have been directing and stuff throughout the Midwest. Have you ever seen Sweeney Todd done in a small black box theatre? No, no. I've never seen it live. But in preparing for this, actually, one of the most recent adaptations of it off-Broadway was done in a old restaurant that was converted. Yeah. Did you have, yeah. I, I went and saw it when I was in New York in December. Uh, so it was really cool to see how they did it because they had um, just dinner tables like all throughout the space and in the first row of tables no one could have like cups or anything on it because the actors were running and sitting on top of the tables and full on interacting with the audience I love it is it too late to work that in (laughs) bring in some tables well we we don't have tables or uh, dinnerware for you but we do have I mean Dog Master is the next door for your own drinks we have Peggy Jean pies and fluffy butt cookies so there's definitely food 
and drink to go around. And in our space, in a similar way, the audience is very close mm. to the action. Unlike uh, what they call a proscenium stage, where the audience is separate looking at the actors and the actors are in their own space. This one is sort of more arena or like thrust meets runway mm. situation where there are actors on either side of the action and then it all happens right in front of you. So there's no bad seat at Talking Horse ever, but this one in particular, you are right there. People are right at your knees. It's really cool. When the when the Christopher Bond adaptation of the play first opened in East London in Stratford Theatre, apparently when you walked in as the audience member, there was a piano being played, people were mm. drinking beer, and they were eating meat pies. <laughs> so I wondered if you were going to have <laughs> any Peggy Jean meat pies. They, they are fruit. <laughs> They're fruit. Yep. So as not to confuse anyone. <laughs> I think it would be far more, you know, in the moment to have meat pies. Well, the actors do. Yeah, we get to eat meat pies. Yeah, one of one of the uh, ensemble, or actually, she plays Mr. Fogg. It's her first trouser role. Uh, Mallory Donahue. She she made all of the meat pies, and they are delicious. They actually, when we're saying God, that's good. They actually are good. Yeah. Well, now, Monica, I have to ask you to tell us the story of how you came to be in this musical. <laughs> Well, it was kind of fun, you know, because uh, Sondheim, you know, has a reputation for for uh, creating some very difficult, challenging music. I, unlike my my people here next to me, I am not a musical person. I don't sing well. I have never learned how to read music, and so every musical I've ever gotten cast in, I thought it was a fluke. I was waiting for like Ashton Kutcher to like walk out and say, "You're punked." Or, that's like a really old <laughs> reference now. <laughs> Anyway, so I, I was, you know, I took my son because my son wanted to audition and, and and people kept coming up to me asking me if I was auditioning. I said, no, absolutely not. I could never get cast in a Sondheim musical. And my 11-year-old son looks at me and he says, mom, you wouldn't let that fly if I said that. So I think you should audition. And so then you have to be the, you know, the adult and set a good example for your kid. And so I auditioned and these crazies called me back. <laughs> cast me so that was nuts <laughs> so here is what I will tell you about that uh, the truth the truth of the matter is if anyone if you don't know Monica she is a fabulous singer <laughs> but she's also a wonderful character actress and what we talk about a lot as a cast is that this is not just a choir singing beautiful complicated music up on stage these are not one dimensional crazy caricatures mm. of violent people these are real three dimensional humans going through in unusual circumstances that hopefully we don't find ourselves in, very real human emotions and, and struggles. I, I mean, I would love to hear you guys kind of talk from an actor's perspective what that was like for you. Are you doing the interview now? Oh like my God, just, yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Same question. <laughs> um, it's really great, especially like if you're in an ensemble and you're playing multiple characters and you want to give each one its own flavor and you're wearing the same costume, you know, you you have to do something physically or emotionally to to change that. So you have to do, um, you know, it's it's like uh, uh, our friend Trent came to rehearsal the other night and he was talking about his teacher, uh, Kirsten Olsen Malin. He always says, you prepare before you even open the door or set foot on the stage. You emotionally prepare so that you go out there so the audience doesn't see the transition of Monica becoming, you know, street person in London, you know, 19th century. You prepare that beforehand so when you step on, 
you've got that tension, you've got that anxiety of something's gonna happen and it's scary and I don't wanna be a part of it. I don't want get you know, I don't wanna be involved in the, you know, the part that gets baked into the pies. I just wanna be an observer. <laughs> That's where I am in this moment. So, you know, that that takes, you know, some some work, you know, in preparing the backstory. Even even the you know, the little lady that I get to play that sells the birds, you know, you have to pre- create a backstory for that person so that they're real to you. When they're real to you, they'll be real to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm actually taking an acting class with Kia Seriously, right now. Yeah, so, yes, she's I, amazing. I know about that. That's what we have to do this weekend is prepare for when we walk into the scene, when we have to already be in a state of anxiety yeah. or joy or anger or fear or whatever that emotion's going to be. So you prepare off stage and then you step on the stage. That's right. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So, David, um, for people who maybe do not know the story of Sweeney Todd, <laughs> give us a synopsis of the story. Well, it's about a barber named Benjamin Barker. Um, he got shipped away um, by Judge Turpin. And he ends up coming back 15 years later, and he puts on a new persona. He becomes Sweeney Todd, and he's wanting to seek out revenge because he can't find his wife or his daughter. And it turns out that the Judge Turpin has uh, his daughter, Joanna. And so the way he tries getting to him is by he opens a barber shop above Mrs. Lovett's pie shop. Uh, and so from then you get to see how that um, escalates and to see will he get his daughter back while you get to meet a bunch of uh, crazy, fun other people (laughs) along the way. And who are you in this scenario? I play uh, Tobias Rag. He is this little boy. He um, sells Pirelli's Miracle Elixir on the street, and then he ends up working for Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney, and he kind of loses it at the end uh, because he has to go through like this huge change. He thinks that he's helping Mrs. Lovett make the meat pies and they turn, he like finds out the truth about it. So he just roams around a cellar seeing a bunch of dead bodies and then you just get to see the decline of his sanity. Um, I, I think that he kind of almost saves the day, though, because he realizes oh, yeah. the evil that is being perpetrated. And um, and he, uh, I guess it's it's a well-known enough story to people. I'm not giving a spoiler by saying yeah. that Sweeney comes to a sticky end mm-hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> at the hands of you. Yeah. <laughs> the really interesting thing about Toby's character and something that was a learning process for me in learning about the musical as opposed to some of the adaptations is the character of Toby. Toby, while most recently portrayed as a young child, and and that works really well, was originally written for a young adult, a young man, who, because of his previous circumstances, has these intellectual uh, difficulties, right? So he's he's a, a young man who is really so innocent and so trusting, and yet has been so abused by his previous master that when he encounters... Mrs. Lovett, who to the rest of us really does feel like the villain of the play. He sees her as this mother figure and that trusting innocence and the intense like desire to give her anything is really beautiful and watching David do that on stage is incredible and it allows Mrs. Lovett who we can see as really evil in some ways, the mastermind behind all of the evil that happens on the stage, to become 
this woman who is searching for a family. She wants someone to take care of. She wants to be with Sweeney and to raise these children. She says she has these motherly instincts. We don't always see those play out, but it's interesting to see that battle in her too. And David's ability to play that and make that real, I think really brings new dimensions to the show. I think one of my favorite songs in the show is Not While I'm Around, Uh, um, which Tobias sings to Mrs. Lovett. And she sings back to Tobias. And that is a really heartwarming moment of this kind of love between in the audience last <laughs> night for our final dress because David sings so beautifully. That's <laughs> true. Now, when the when the um, I'm reading right now the original Penny Dreadful um, oh, yeah. serial, yes. which occurred. So, to give you the background to this, Sweeney Todd started life as a story in a weekly periodical called the People's Periodical and Family Library, which was sold for a penny in London uh, in the 1840s. And it was one of what they called the uh, penny dreadfuls or or, uh, blood pennies, I think they called them too. These kind of uh, books which have a sensationalized murder and, and bad things and people, it was an early... You know, weekly magazine of a story that carried on and people every week they'd find the penny to buy the next installment. <laughs> and I think you was, had to buy the first one but they'd give you like the second, third and fourth right. one to get you hooked. Yeah. Get you hooked. Kind of like a drug dealer. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then you were like solidly <laughs> in the story. Yeah. <laughs> and it was first called The String of Pearls a romance, which when you see the modern version, you think, really, there's a romance? But actually, there are probably three, I'd say, romances in this mm-hmm. this version. So, Monica, yes. tell us about the romances. The romance, because I get none of them. So, yeah, have me talk about it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there there is there romance in the historical, you know, meaning of it. I mean, it could be, be other things, but I, I'm assuming you mean, like, uh, relationship, romance. So, there's there's kind of a one-sided romance between uh, Mr. Todd and Mrs. Lovett. There's definitely, she's she's liked him for a long time, more than liked him maybe, and so there's that. Um, there's our, our ingenues, they're, they are probably the most beautiful people I've ever seen in real life. <laughs> they, they, they really are beautiful. <laughs> Dylan and Fiona, when when Fiona walked in the door at auditions, they're like, well, there's your Joanna. I mean, she's <laughs> even got the long, beautiful golden hair that's really, we you know, no wig required. She came, you know, ready for the role of <laughs> Joanna. Um, and then the third romance, Romance, I guess, would be the romance or the kind of thwarted romance that was, you know, thwarted by the judge, um, w- which was between the beggar woman and, well, I, I think I maybe just well, spoiler alert. And, and, <laughs> and Mr. And who Todd. She really loves. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I do think that, you know, that it's almost a romance. It's kind of a, a maternal romance, but between Mrs. Yeah. Lovett and very Tobias. And oh, I just, didn't even go there. That's and, creepy. And, and a very. And, and a very uncomfortable romance between Judge Turpin and oh, his ward. Yeah. There, there There's are lots of like, lots yeah. of some healthy and some very not bad. healthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, since it was first published as a as a serial in the 1840s, uh, it became a film in 1926, mm-hmm. which has mm-hmm. now been lost. Yeah, um, lost it was a, a comedy burlesque. Yeah, I was going to say it was a burlesque <laughs> one, so it would have been really fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, in preparation. <laughs> <laughs> it was a radio play in the mid 1930s, a ballet in 1959, but it was only in 1973 when Christopher <laughs> Bond adapted this old Penny Dreadful version and turned it into the modern play. And Sondheim just happened to be in London and went to see it and thought, uh, "Aha, 
I will turn this into a musical, which he yeah. did in 1979, and then it came out as a big movie in the late 70s with Angela Lansbury. She had mm. that as the original cast movie, and Len Carreyou, I think, was a Canadian mm. actor. And then it won eight Tony Awards and has entered the global consciousness <laughs> ever since. So, Monica, I know that you are not a fan of performing <laughs> Sondheim. And well, this is the first time I've done it. I'm still not really won over. But, <laughs> but no, the music is incredible. I mean, it's some of the most phenomenal music you'll ever hear. I mean, talking about music that is a character of the play that mm. is totally the case in this show because you're feeling tense and scared and creeped out before an actor even steps on the stage with this music so it is very much the lyrics are pretty much why I have a grudge against Sondheim that's that's the only thing <laughs> because he, he really challenges actors you know you can see why this was a why Sondheim was a big um, influencer of like Lin-Manuel Miranda you know and things people who really use the poetry of lyrics and try to to create this like madness in in the audience's mind and certainly in the actor's mind. Um, mm-hmm. City on Fire will probably be my least favorite song <laughs> until. But the, the good thing is, is you're a lunatic while you're singing it. So if it drives you crazy trying to learn the lyrics for this this piece, then you're in character. So it's fine. So. <laughs> Al- allegedly, Angela Lansbury, when she was asking Sondheim when she was meant to breathe during the song mm. By the Sea, right? Ah! And Seriously. sometimes said he didn't write any parts for her to breathe. <laughs> yep. there's, there's literally a line no, in a different no. song where she goes, pity a woman alone, and then I mean, with limited wind. Yep. And I find that to be the funniest, because she literally, like, doesn't get to breathe. Nope. <laughs> And then imagine doing this in like true period costuming and like corsets and oh. stuff. I mean, you'd be dead. You'd and be running dead. around. Yeah, too. that's insane. <laughs> the one, the 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 woman who plays our Mrs. Lovett is incredible. Yes, the feats that she pushes that character to. All of them, really, all of you. And this is what I love too, as a person who loves comedy. Finding the comedy in this is is tricky, and yet it is there. And yeah. I think what I find so interesting about that juxtaposition between the two, like, it's why when we go and see scary movies or go to a madhouse, right, we scream and then we laugh, right? right. It's that, like, immediate, intense physical release yeah. of all of that tension that builds up. And they have been so good at finding those moments. It's a dark show. There's no doubt about <laughs> yeah. it. But there's but so much fun. humor yeah. and levity. There's if you so like murder much. and cannibalism. But and I do. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I will totally 100% back Kathleen up here. Our leads, are, our principals are just phenomenal. We've got one of the best casts I've ever mm. had the pleasure of working with. And not just cast, but crew. Every single person has brought their box of talents and set it on the table and said, whatever you need, I got it. And mm-hmm. they've just put their heart into this and our orchestra okay so we talked about the limitations of the space as far as the acting and the set and all that and you know Meg Phillips Crespi did some wonderful things with the set design Mm -hmm. and you know you feel like you're like sitting in Fleet Street but where are you going to put an orchestra 
you know, and you need good music and you want it to be local musicians because you want to showcase when you're doing a, a show at a local theater, you want to showcase your local talent. So what do you do? Well, Enola uh, um, White, is that right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I always see the Facebook yes. name, so I want to put the middle <laughs> one in there too. But Enola, she got this group of fabulous musicians together and they were like, we will record the music so that you'll still be working with local musicians, but we don't have to find a physical space for them. So whereas we normally get to work with a live orchestra, we, we are still working with a local orchestra, but we have recorded tracks, and they sound amazing. And because of the trickiness of the music, right, and in a, the, these actors finding that rhythm and that right. space, not only have they recorded beautiful tracks, but in a number of circumstances, they've said, let us go back and re-record the pacing of this, or let us give you a little bit more of a vamp here. Yeah. Like, they have really put in Customized. incredible mm-hmm. time and energy yeah. to make these tracks work. For our actors on stage. Wow, I was I was going to ask you about that because I knew there was a twenty-six piece orchestra in the original yeah. production, and I wondered how you were going to fit them all into this tiny space, or yes. how, or whether they, or whether when you buy the play, the rights to perform the play, they send you a CD of you music. Can. You I can. I mean, do you that. could purchase live orchestration. Of okay, this. we could have done that, but why, why would you make it Ew, easier? Right. <laughs> people, no, but again, and this is the thing that I am constantly amazed by in Columbia you have this small town in the middle of Missouri and yet the depth of talent here Mm. is incredible if you give yourself the time and you just trust that like everyone is going to bring everything they can to the table what you get is so incredible and so much more enriching Mm. than if we were to have taken the easier road Yes, who wants to do that? No, that clearly not silly. Kathleen Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I was going to ask you about the staging. Um, it's a very bloodthirsty play. Yeah. And they're, in the movie, at least, there's lots of jugulars spilling their contents. <laughs> so I wondered, do you use a lot of red scarves or do we get splatter sheets? <laughs> if we yeah. um, our, our wonderful costume designer, Mary, um, she incorporated red little ribbons that they put in the collars. So whenever they go for the jugular, they just rip that out so it's just like this beautiful little glimpse of a very gory thing mm-hmm. um, and it's wonderful. okay in a, in a space like Talking Horse there when you walk in I think if you've been to a show there you'll see the space being used in many different ways but Sweeney itself is such a huge show with so many different locations and so many possibilities you have to draw the line somewhere and so we thought very carefully about what things we would physically show you and present you because we thought that was important to the integrity of the situation and which things could be left up to the mind and I think sometimes not seeing is a little more powerful than seeing um you don't need to be splattered with big <laughs> blood to understand the intensity of what that feels like. Yeah. And in some ways... You can the, do that at home on your own time. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> and, and the complications of those, I feel like sometimes seeing something try to be real and just not quite yeah. is not as moving as understanding the emotion and like the intensity behind it. Mm-hmm. And so a number of props you'll see don't exist but they're there and the actors do such a good job of miming and and making them real and others are presented in different ways and I think again that helps the audience just become even more engaged in what's happening 
on the stage in front of them. How do you make the uh, the victims disappear? Do they is there a trap door that they disappear down? Oh, there is. <gasps> yeah, we don't have. So the original story of Sweeney Todd way back in the Penny Dreadful was the the contraption of the chair, and he would pull a lever before they were even dead. And if their necks didn't break on the way down, then he would go down and slit their throats. And um, again, we talk about being in that space. For us, the the there are other technical challenges we wanted to play with, and so it's never. Never, again, given the complexity of the characters, it's never about the fun of how he gets to kill them. It's that he gets to kill them, that release of emotion and what that does for him in, in his uh, search for revenge and like completeness. That's what it becomes about. So, yes, he does find clever ways to get rid of them. Um, but we see that happen and, and kind of the struggle, the physical struggle that it would have actually taken someone to dispose of a body and kind of the the uncomfortable and awkward elements that come with that. Luckily, Dane is a beast. And so he's like, <laughs> really eh, dead body? I can handle it. <laughs> he's got a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> Ed Hansen's an amazing dyer, by the way. I, I just yeah. have oh, he's to say. Victim, he's he? a victim. And I he's, wanted who he was I, I swear every night I think, just from the sounds that I'm hearing, he's actually dying right <laughs> and they, now. And they, what a way to welcome him into time. retirement. <laughs> we have one character who dies three different times. Yeah. <laughs> so they're really pushing it. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, when, again, in the Penny Dreadful original, I've just read a bit where they're talking about Mrs. Lovett. And, mm. and, and in, the, in the original book, you know, she, her pies are great. I mean, people come from all over mm. the financial district. They're all excited to eat her pies. Not that they're in the film. They talk about how awful the pies right. are. <laughs> and um, I forgot what I was going to say. But, uh, um, they, uh, oh, that's it. It's, it says in the Penny Dreadful, a devil lurks in her eye. Mm. And so they perceive that she's this kind of really nice person, but maybe there's something going on kind of, you know, mm. behind. And I wondered if you think, uh, David, let me ask you this, do you think Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett are equally evil? Or do you think oh. uh, one is more evil Great than question. the other? Um, it's, that's an interesting question. I think it's more, Lovett has more evil tendencies than Sweeney does. Um, just because Lovett's the one that realizes what they could do with the bodies. And she's the one that's like, hey, you bring them in, I'll make money out of it. So it's the. I think she, she's just yeah. entrepreneurial and thrifty. <laughs> I mean, reduce, reuse, recycle, right? <laughs> you open a pie <laughs> shop, Monica. I am not going to be a pie shop. And I would say, too, she is. There's no doubt. If you come up with the idea to put people into pies and to continue killing for your own financial gain, that's bad. But I think it really is a statement on what we do for love, the way that we can twist our own mind into making things that are so not okay okay because we want to make other people happy we want to fulfill those like deep needs so because it seems like Sweeney Todd kind of has a has a reason he has he's yes. you know he's been traumatized he's been badly treated this awful man Judge Turpin has possibly killed his wife but somehow done away with her he has stolen his daughter he's holding a hostage Sweeney's an angry man and he has mm -hmm. justification to be angry um, mm -hmm. but yeah Mrs. Lovett's just an entrepreneur allow me <laughs> okay is it but however yeah. so there's a theme of justice and you know leaders when they get absolute power they're mm -hmm. corrupted absolutely and right. so there's this beautiful line in one of the wonderful songs that uh, Sondheim <laughs> wrote here but it, is, it says the history of the world my love is those below serve 
serving those up above. And then how gratifying for once to know that those above will serve those down below. <laughs> so there's this theme of justice, too. So it's not just yeah. evil. It's also who's really the, the villain mm-hmm. and who's really the victim. And that we all have it. At the yeah. very end, one of the last lines is, to seek revenge may lead to hell, but mm. everyone does it if seldom as well as yep. Sweeney Todd. <laughs> and th- that's the truth. Like you it do, is. you have to confront your own demons. May they not hopefully be eating Making humans. Making people into meat. But right. <laughs> real, you know, the complexities of who we are. So yeah. on, on that note, just tell us um, when the play is on and how we get tickets and the times, et cetera, et cetera. Ooh. Okay, so you can go to Talking Horse Productions to get all of your ticket needs, um, or you can call and reserve your tickets. Opening night is tonight, so we run Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon. And then for the next two weekends, so three weekends total, we have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday shows. And I will say tickets are going quickly. There, There's a possibility that you can get it as a walk-up, but if you know that you want to make time to see this show, and you all should, go online <laughs> and reserve your tickets today. Well, and there will be the speaking of the arts effect. So in fact, yes. if you do not book your tickets within oh. the next hour, they will be gone. They will. <laughs> it's magic. <laughs> Thank you so much to Kathleen Johnson, David Hall, and Monica Palmer from Talking Horse Productions. Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, opens tonight at Talking Horse Theatre and continues for three weekends. Get your tickets if you dare. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5. And after the break, we'll be back with Missouri's first poet laureate. What a bargain. Do not go away. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, and I am delighted to welcome poet Walter Bargain to the studio. Thank you for being here, Walter. Uh, thank you for uh, <laughs> inviting me. So let me start by asking you something that I have wondered about. How does one become the state's poet laureate? Well, originally it was a long and complicated process. I think that they have streamlined it a little bit, but originally it happened right at the end of the um, Governor Blunt's administration. He decided not to to run for re-election. And his advisors had told him, don't do this. Do not appoint a poet laureate. I guess they were worried that, um, you know, there was a chance for some type of embarrassing event happening. And he told me, I just decided I was going to do this because people will probably say this is the best thing that I did did in four (laughs) years. And actually, people did say that when I was traveling around as Poet Laureate. So, you know, in a, in a way, he was partially right. But at that time, you had to be nominated. There were, there were 135 nominations, and they weeded through them somehow, and that was done through the, uh, the Missouri Center for the Book. And they, got, they reduced it to four finalists. And I was one of them. Uh, I received a phone call. I went down for an interview. I expected it to be a, um, you know, a handshake hello and a handshake goodbye. And then the interview lasted 45 minutes, which was rather shocking to me. <clears throat> it required me to be uh, tense for that long. <laughs> and I was really taken aback when the very first thing that he said was, I just finished rereading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland for the third time. I mean, you know, I'm for a moment I'm just sitting there going, oh God, how do I respond to this? How do I respond to this? And then I just blurted out, uh, let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. 
Let us go then down certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats, the lonely nights, with one-night cheap hotels and restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent leading to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo, and so forth. You know, I went on another <laughs> few stanzas, <clears throat> and that kind of broke the ice. I went through this interview. I think the funniest thing that happened in the interview, and there are a couple of uh, his uh, assistants there, and was this question that I was totally unprepared for. I mean, I, I had tried to think of all the things that I might be asked, and it was, can you think of any reason why we shouldn't appoint you as Poet Laureate? And, you know, I've lived in the Midwest too long, generally speaking, you know, we're humble folk. And I just was scratching my brain. It was like a cat stuck in a cage. And finally I said, well, I did use the word breasts in a poem. And, and mentally I'm going, duh, duh. Here I am in the governor's office and I'm saying the word breasts. I mean, after That's all, John hilarious. Ashcroft covered up, you know, the Statue of Justice because she had her chest exposed. And, you know, we, we kind of chuckled about that. And rather than leave it alone, I had to dig the hole a little deeper. And I said, <laughs> well, you know, I did grow up in the 60s. You know, it, uh, all the way home, I'm just thinking, I blew it. I blew it. <laughs> and then the next day, I received a phone call saying, uh, you know, we want to, uh, we're going to send you a form, a release form, because we have to do a uh, background check because any appointment by the governor is is on the level of seriousness of a judicial appointment so both my wife and i had to go through background checks and then that's amazing uh, to be a poet mm -hmm. (laughs) and then you know uh, six weeks later i get a call the official call in january saying you know you're poet laureate but of course What's a poet laureate? What is a poet laureate? Right, do? that was my next question. What is a poet laureate? What What are you supposed to do? What's on the job description? Uh, the job description was uh, pretty minimal, and it, it was a work in progress for the entire two years. I'm basically, it came down to me trying to to start up a couple of uh, interesting little programs, like a, a video conference, um, not weekly, maybe biweekly. Not, not, I mean, every other week. Fortnightly, yes, as we fort- say in England. Fortnightly, yes. Where uh, I would interview a poet live, uh, and it would be broadcast to high school libraries so they could, uh, they could invite students in and they could watch this. And it was fairly successful as long as uh, I was the poet, you know. But after that, the interest seemed to die off rather dramatically. And it, that withered away. And um, I ended up maybe averaging at least one public event a week. And I think that is what they want you to do if you're the National Poet Laureate. Is It says, during their term, the Poet Laureate seeks to raise the national consciousness to a greater appreciation of the reading and writing of poetry. And it is about public appearances and, and mm-hmm. public engagement and speaking and telling stories. So I guess you, uh, you, you mastered it then. <laughs> uh, un, un, unbeknownst to me, yes, maybe. <laughs> Now, in Missouri, we get a new Poet Laureate every two years. Is that right? Yeah, it's a little ragged on that end, though. Oh. You know, um, um, there's, there's, there are now four, there have been four Poet Laureates now. And um, they, they never get around to actually doing every two years, it seems. 
that um, uh, William Trowbridge went uh, an extra long time. And I think uh, Aliki Barnstone's um, tenure is up, but I have heard nothing about them appointing a new poet laureate. Maybe it's not top of the agenda in Jefferson City these days. Uh, yeah, you know, don't don't get me going. <laughs> Does every state have a poet laureate? No, I I think maybe there's only like forty two states, and maybe at least one of them rescinded the position. It was a, a result of a. Um, an embarrassing incident? <laughs> uh, well, the legislature considered it embarrassing. It was uh, Amir Baraka who uh, wrote a rather long uh, poem trying to give context to the 9-11 event. And uh, people didn't want to hear context at that time. Gosh, we're censoring poetry, mm -hmm. are we, these days? Um, so is there a natural progression if you have been a state poet laureate to becoming a national poet laureate? I don't think that that's ever happened. So the national poet laureate is, or the poet laureate consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress is the full title, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And the Librarian of Congress appoints that person to be the official poet. Uh, and I guess in the same way that a state does, they just have advisors and uh, nomination committees and they choose people would you, would you be interested in being the national poet laureate oh yes of course <laughs> so we should nominate you anyone out there can nominate walter bargain for the national position so you have a new collection of poetry which was released i believe on september the 30th by lamar university press and it's called my other mother's red mercedes and when we had coffee this week you forewarned me and said it is not a happy book and it's not <laughs> I have read it several times this week, um, but it is haunting and it is very beautiful in its elegy and its poignancy. So tell us about the collection and the journey that it takes us on. Well, to begin with, um, I still have great doubts about this book, one of which is uh, was brought to mind when I went to uh, Kansas City recently for the I-70 Review release party. And there was a, a poet there who was talking about uh, his mother and the journey that she's on and of course he's on it with her and talking about the difficulty of writing about it because he was concerned about her privacy and in some ways you know that's still a concern for me but there's a part of me that just said the only way I'm going to survive this is to write about it and so I wrote about it um, and basically my my mother um, befuddled uh, most of her friends and me for a number of years because for some reason it just didn't dawn on us that uh, that there was something going on with her we should, we thought that she was just really a hard-headed German and and believe me um, there's a cup there was a cup in her um, cabinet that said you can tell a German but you can't tell her much <laughs> And, and th that's what I think we were all proceeding from. And finally, after this, I'd say, nine-month, maybe a little longer period of time when she was being scammed by re real Jamaican uh, car salesmen. They weren't real car salesmen, but they were Jamaican. And she probably spent ten dollars to $12,000 on moneygrams being sent to them because they kept promising her every time she sent money that there would be a red Mercedes pickup parked in her driveway for her 
which she desperately wanted to give to her son, I mean her grandson. Well, of course, that never showed up. And um, uh, finally, I said, you know, by then she had pretty much alienated most of her friends because she refused to listen to them. And, and, and I guess they had, you know, really uh, loud arguments and not that I didn't have loud arguments with her. And, and it wasn't infrequent that we were yelling at each other on the phone. But I took her to a neurologist, uh, described what was going on, you know, he gave her a few very minimal tests, and then he wrote a letter um, giving me, con uh, making it legal for me to take over her finances and prevent her from just uh, throwing this money away. And, and that was really the beginning of the very steep decline. But I think a lot of this was going on long before that. And it just wasn't recognized, and 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 all of her friends just thought that she was quirky and and hard-headed. But I think that there was much more going on. Like for example, I was looking through some uh, photo albums that I'm going to say were around 1990, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later. And I opened one up, and I looked all the way through it, and I realized that there were three sets of the same photographs that filled up this entire album and they were just repeating themselves all the way through. And I go, hmm, hmm, what's going on there? You know, um, so she was doing a very good job of coping with whatever was going on until this point when she started getting scammed and I'd say that was maybe around 2009. And she died in 2015. Yes, yes. So tell me a little bit about your mother and the relationship that you had with her, because you were an only child. Yes, it was um, a somewhat of a combative relationship. Um, I often felt like my father stood in between me and my mother. And, um, you know, my father died really rather young and many years prior to that. And... Um, I probably wasn't as attentive to her as I should have been. And once I started getting involved, uh, all of the difficulties and frictions that we had just came back very quickly again. You know, for example, when I was trying to get her help, um, she started making accusations, which I didn't fully comprehend. To, you know, I thought she was just trying to be annoying. Like, for example, um, you know, she would call every female who showed up my girlfriend, and I couldn't quite figure out why that was, and then I realized that it was uh, somehow that was an insult. I mean, when the when this when the caseworker came to help get uh, maybe straighten out things and get a little help for her, that was my girlfriend. When a um, fellow graduate of uh, the same high school I went to, I, she was maybe a year younger, uh, who was really her best friend one of her best friends she started calling her my girlfriend i mean i'm just going well you know what's that all about and and it you know somehow she projected some type of relationship uh on her with me that just didn't exist at all so there it is you know you do in one poem call her a provocateur uh, and I, it was, is that how it felt that she was always kind of pushing you and needling you to respond and be annoyed with her? Um, I, you know, I think actually it was a strategy in a way that, yes, that was certainly the probably the outcome, but I think it was really a strategy to distract me and from really looking at what was happening with her cognitively. 
the collection certainly has you know lighter moments but overall every time i read it and then you know reread it and then reread certain works that were speaking to me i felt very weighted by the angst of a frustrated relationship that you had and the difficulty of course which all of us go through watching our parents disappear behind a veil of dementia or alzheimer's so was it cathartic writing this collection did it release something within you Absolutely, it gave me a focus. It you know it allowed me to take that that energy, um, that confusion, and try to do something creative with it. Um, at the same time, to record what was actually going on, and it probably wasn't until I was maybe about halfway or two thirds of the way through it that I began to realize that I think this might work as a book. Although I'm you know in some ways I'm still not absolutely certain it does. But it's very different from what I usually write. You know, in a way, this almost could be confessional in a way. It feels confessional. As opposed to the, uh, the writing a poem, which is an artifact, you know, which is a studied amalgamation of thought and feeling and um, description. You know, this is just trying to get it down as it happened. Now, the title is My Other Mother's Red Mercedes, and you've explained the Red Mercedes. Uh, who is my other mother? Well, at some point, my, uh, my mother made reference to my other mother. And I went, what's that all about? And I, I took it somewhat seriously because I discovered that uh, a couple of my cousins who were son and daughter of my favorite aunt and uncle in Germany were actually not blood relatives. They were war orphans. And I didn't find that out till many, many years later. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is she trying to tell me? And I would keep trying to get information out of her and I could never get any information out of her. And then there's a point where she has these two very extended discolorations on both of her forearms, and she refers to them as my sisters. And I go, what's that about? Okay, what are their names? Uh, Where do they live? Um, What have they been doing? How do I get in contact with them? And of course, there's no information there either. You know, it's just this reference. Of course, with my mother, it was much more frequent. My other mother, that is. And so the the idea of the title, My Other Mother's Red Mercedes, you know, the, 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 the woman who is involved with this red Mercedes is really not my mother. Hmm. And this other mother comes to stand in and it becomes her red Mercedes you know it, the the delusion that my mother is having belongs to the delusion of the existence of this other mother did you look into whether there was another mother did you kind of fall down that rabbit hole a little bit mentally uh, yes you know I you know I wondered about it uh, you know and I just decided to um, kind of build a wall because you know, I'm too old to to, uh, to unravel something like that at this point. Although, you know, what an interesting story that would make to discover that. But, you know, I have to admit, when I visited my, my cousin uh, in Vaginum Zay, you know, we look too much alike for, you know, another mother. Right. Then again, 
there are other possibilities. But, you know, the thing about the sisters is fascinating, too. Let's read or have you read something from the book. I, I guess, and talking about the other mother, there is a work called Doppelganger in your book. Is that one that we should... Uh, uh, kind yeah. of speaks to the other mother story on page 65. Thank you. <laughs> I've got so much bookmarked here, and yet I don't have that one bookmarked. I have lots post, a lot of post-it notes on my copy, too. Duplegonger. My mother wants to know if I know that my mother is a chain smoker. I don't know whether to answer yes, no, really. In room 106A, where she's been moved, discharged from the rehabilitation unit for lack of progress, but really because she, has, because she was near the end of her insurance and there was a new patient that could be moved in for three more overcharged months. She tells me that my mother showed up at 1 a.m. smoking and wouldn't stop until the small trash can under the sink was filled with butts. Shrouded in a blue pall, she couldn't see the television mounted on the wall. This is what my mother tells me about my other mother. Repeating the story, I ask for a name, but it has gone up in smoke. Do you think that she somehow believed there was another mother? Was she, was she, was she trying to say she wasn't your mother to be, again, a provocateur? You know, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea, um, you know, why she made reference to my other mother and there are so many possibilities it you know was she feeling guilty about you know not having been you know a stellar mother was she uh trying to tell me something about the confusion that was going on in her mind about uh, you know what was happening to her uh, you know i really don't know the book is divided into six sections plus an epilogue talk to me about how you made that decision or the life chapters that each section focuses on or the slightly different themes in each one uh, originally they were just to be blank pages uh, i was hoping that maybe that might echo something of the experience of dementia of alzheimer's you know for the reader to see that oh there's this space there there this there's this gap and although i really do like space in in poems that's one of the things that i really find attractive but within each section there is a, a bit of a focus uh, there is also a chronological development through the whole book but not a strict chronology you know it it, it starts off with um, acknowledging that uh, my my father is dead you know it, there's a couple of scenes and the, there's uh, that are described in the cemetery in Leavenworth, Kansas. There's also going through his uh, material possessions. And, and of course, nothing ever walk, uh, happened without some kind of guilt from my mother being projected onto me. And, uh, and of course, I have lost his dancing shoes. No, I haven't, but she thinks I have. It actually turns out that she gave them to some, somebody else in the, in the dance troupe. She belonged to a traditional German dancing group. Then, you know, it, it, it develops um, into me slowly moving towards moving her out of her house, you know, trying to maintain her there as long as possible. But it just, you know, wasn't happening. You know, uh, part-time care wasn't working. She spent three hours on the floor in the bathroom one day because she couldn't get up. And um, 
and then there's the trauma of me taking away her dog her house her car as she'd lived in that house over 50 years um, her car you know all these things that were really meaningful to her and moving her into a um, first it was independent living but she very quickly um, uh, couldn't handle that and then she got she was placed in independent living where she very quickly broke her femur and um, it just it was a downhill slide from there one of the motifs that to me seem to run through the book um, and it's heartbreaking is your own self recrimination in one work you say that you accept the label of neglectful son in another you say I have done so much wrong I've taken away her car like you say her mm-hmm. house her friends her dog with the benefit of years past do you still feel that way or have you forgiven yourself what appears to be a lot of guilt in this book on one level I ignore it you know, that seems to be my strategy. Just ignore it and go on and live my life. On another level, it's like so much happened, there's no way that I could ever sort through it all and feel good about it. There were, there were long periods when, you know, we really didn't have contact with each other because the um, animosity and antagonism was just too great. You know, and I think that there's something of that caught in the very last poem in the uh, epigraph. I mean, the epilogue. We have a few few seconds left, but let's let's do our last little read of something in the book. Uh, this is called a kind of argument. She's folded into her wheelchair, head settling deep into her shoulders, erasing her neck, perched in waiting flight, from Rome's winged victory to angelic church icons hanging on candle smoke stained walls. Eyes hard, staring down for those who pray to rise up, staring up at those already walking on air. Her companion already, her companions already speak different languages. They only have the long sentence of their stares left to tell us, the wandering confused. Behind her, a door moans open. A dove pecks its way through the mown grass. Her hands flock over her lap, perhaps remembering to shut the stove off that's an all-day, an all-night event, to remove all that burned and charred. Before that, before she was moved, removed from her kitchen. Or is it the steering wheel she's ga- grasping, recalling directions to turn right, left, until she is balanced on a boulder in the grocery parking lot, going nowhere? I passed through you over a half-century ago and wonder how it felt and feels now that you pass through me. Walter Bargain, thank you so much. Walter's book, My Other Mother's Red Mercedes, is available for purchase from... Uh, Sky, Skylock Bookshop, and I'll be reading there on November 15th, I believe. November the 15th, and in the evening, will it at, be? At, at, at six, 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock, so you can hear Walter read from his book at 6 p.m. at Skylock Bookshop on November the 15th. Walter, it is a delight to talk to you, and I have so much more after reading the book having been through dementia with my father that I would like to ask you about but I thank you for writing this because it gave voice mm-hmm. to some of the feelings that I have had that I couldn't put as eloquently as you did well, I, I've never shared any of these poems in a public venue before so the, it's kind of like a I'm tipping my toes in the water <laughs> it's like a little confessional yes well thank you Walter 
Um, you're listening to Speaking of the Arts and I'm Diana Moxon. As usual, we'll end the show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. You heard them on today's show and tonight the curtain opens on Talking Horse Theatre's production of the dark musical Sweeney Todd. Curtain rises at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow with a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Another Columbia Theatre option tonight is the MU Theatre Department's production of Songs for a New World in their new Black Box Theatre Studio 4 on Hit Street. At the Columbia Entertainment Company, Pace Youth Theatre are performing the whodunit comedy Clue. There are four shows this weekend, tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 plus 2pm matinees tomorrow and Sunday. In Jefferson City, Capital City Productions have Cabaret on the stage and at Fretboard Coffee tonight is the fifth anniversary with live music from 6pm onwards including Ray Fitzgerald, Austin Jones and the Boothill Boys and the Flood Brothers. The Columbia Art League's annual Boone County Art Show has its sneak peek opening at Central Bank of Boone County from 8 till 10 this evening. Tickets cost $25 and include an early perusal of this year's show, wine, dessert bites and live music. You can pay on the door if you want to make a game time decision. At the Blue Note you can hear country rock artist Whitey Morgan at 8pm. Tickets are 25 and at Rose Music Hall singer-songwriter Jameson Rogers is on stage at 9. An Odyssey Chamber music series perform Oktoberfest at First Baptist Church at 7pm tonight. Tomorrow, Saturday, the Boone County Art Show opens at 9 at Central Bank and closes at 5. Out of town is the annual Hartsburg Pumpkin Festival uh, and Ararock has their annual Heritage Festival this weekend. At the Blue Note on Saturday night, they've got comedy on the bill with Randy's Cheeseburger Picnic based on the character from the hit programme Trailer Park Boys. And it's a big night at the Yin Yang Club with RuPaul drag race celebrity Trinity Taylor in the house for her Love the Arts tour. I will be there for that one. Sunday evening, singer-songwriter Lau performs at the Blue Note at 8. Monday evening, the Missouri Review will host the annual Peden Prize Reading and Reception at Orr Street Studios from 6 to 9. At Whitmore Recital Hall on Monday, the Mizzou New Music Ensemble perform their first concert of the season. And on Tuesday morning, the Museum of Art and Archaeology has their monthly sketch group at 10. No previous sketching experience required. Wednesday evening, head to Sega Browdis Gallery for their monthly social sketch event. Bring whatever creative project you're working on or just bring a piece of paper to doodle on and you can meet other creative people you have been listening to speaking of the arts on 89.5 fm kopn columbia with me diana moxon and my good friend and sound engineer mike hagan we'll be back next week with more news views and interviews about the arts in mid-missouri stay arty columbia